The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return, sponsored by Narconon Ojai. Hello, and welcome to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. My name is Joni Siegel. I'm the host for this podcast, and my husband, Steve Siegel, is the producer. This is episode number 199. When a person is addicted to drugs and or alcohol, the myriad of choices of treatments can be overwhelming. Narconon Ojai is a residential treatment facility that addresses the physical, mental, and spiritual aspects of addiction with a proven, drug-free, holistic, evidence-based, step-by-step program designed to free those trapped by addiction. For more information, call 866-231-5924. As I said, this is episode number 199. We are a month into 2021, and I sincerely hope that this is the year that you make the decision to either become clean and sober yourself or to help your loved one become clean and sober. I don't want to have any more people experience what our interviewee today experienced. We're going to be talking to Mary Burns. Mary Burns is a mother of three, a teacher, and has become involved in addiction advocacy since her son's death. She helped spearhead a walk called Changing the Face of Addiction to help change the stigma of addiction. She also brought her advocacy to her local state senator and addressed the New Jersey Senate Budget Appropriations Committee about the need for a change to the addiction treatment protocol. She recently published a book called Saving Eric. Her book tells the story of a strong bond between a mother and her adopted son, and the son struggled to free himself from the demons that led him to addiction. It is about a mother who would not give up who nursed her son through mental illness and ultimately through drug addiction. It is about the grief that envelops her after losing the battle to save her son. Without further ado, let's talk to Mary Burns. Mary Burns, thank you for being willing to share your story on our podcast today. I'm going to do my best to make it through and not be emotional, but yours is a mother's story and I'm a mother. So there you go. So your son, Eric, how did he get started on drugs? Tell me his history with drugs. Um, I think he started probably uh, in eighth grade. Um, And I think he was just having fun with his friends. They started drinking beer. And then I think the marijuana came a little later. I'm presuming eighth grade. I didn't really ask him for all those particulars, but that's uh, from conversations I've had. That's when I think he started. And I think it was just sort of a fun thing, which I think a lot of kids do when they're that age, you know, eighth grade, high school, they start to experiment with alcohol and then marijuana usually is experimented with by, by many. I'm not going to say everybody, but uh, so he was, I think it was just somewhat typical of that age, but yeah, that's how we got started. You know, it's, it's interesting. Um, you were, Okay, so Eric's story is perhaps a bit different than some of the people we've spoken to because it doesn't sound like he had a bad childhood or he had any kind of major trauma in his life. And it was more of a just experimentation thing. Well, I'm not really sure about that. I I don't know if you want to know, but my son was adopted. So I I read that. Yes. I think that was uh, somewhat of an issue for him um, towards the end of his life. 
when we talk about things, he does start to say that maybe it is a little bit of a problem, but he would never admit to it. So I think that had a lot to do with, um, with why he became addicted. I think he um, suffered from a lot of internal pain. Um, okay. At some point in high school, I think towards the end of high school, he was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. So he went through you know, episodes of depression and mania, of course. Um, right. But I, I think his adoption, which for some might be considered early childhood trauma, I think he felt uh, rejected, uh, given away, thrown away. So I personally think that um, I would have wanted to have gotten into more detail about that with him. But of course, I didn't have the amount of time that I thought I had left. So, um, but right. that's from my perspective, I think that had something to do with it. But and otherwise, a... he had a beautiful childhood. He was a <laughs> How old was he when you adopted him, Mary? He was five and a half months old. Oh, wow. And he always knew he was adopted. I mean, he's South Korean, so he didn't look like me or my husband. Uh, okay. So it was very evident that he was adopted. He had a sister that was also adopted um, from South Korea. So, um, you know, he seemed very comfortable with himself. He seemed very comfortable with us as a family. But once high school hit, it just seemed like everything went haywire and um, I don't really understand I don't know if it was the mental illness that was that was there that you know showed itself at that point because um you know it, he was really good until the end of freshman year in high school things really got um, very much out of control for did he graduate to other drugs then in high school um, not in high school I don't think in well I'm not sure again okay. questions I wanted to ask him I think right. it was mostly marijuana I think that is what he told me. But I think towards the end of high school, they were experimenting with other things. Exactly what, I don't know. I don't believe he became addicted to drugs until he, a year after, well, the year after he graduated high school. Because in the following June, he asked me for help because he said he became addicted and he, and he asked for help. So within that, I'm going to say he might've been addicted six months. That's my, that's my thinking. But of course, I never got that confirmed. But a year after high school is when he said to me, mom, I need help. I became addicted to drugs. So, Okay. And what was he addicted to? What drugs was he addicted um, to? At that point, he was on um, Oxycontin. He was taking okay. that. And eventually he graduated to heroin because it became less expensive. But uh, that's how he started. Right. Was he still living with you at the time? Yes, he was. He was. Okay. And honestly, um, when he told me he needed help uh, because he had become addicted, I honestly thought that... Um, we had gotten over all the hurdles. I thought the hormones, raging hormones had settled down. I thought that um, we'd gotten through the worst. He seemed to be doing great. He was working a job. He had a girlfriend. He was saving money. I just thought we got, we got beyond it. So when he asked me for help, I was really shocked. I did not expect that at all. Because, mm. um, you know, he appeared to be extremely functional. He was doing well with everything. But uh, it was the drugs that were helping him feel good. So right now I can look back and say that. Yeah. Right. Just, just as a side note, did you adopt his sister as well? Yes, I did. And okay. then he's got a, we, uh, we had a biological child as well. So he has a, an adopted sister, but they're not biologically related. And then he has a brother as well. I got it. I got it. So he was what, 19 when he told you he needed help? Um, I would say, yeah, yeah. About 19, just under 19, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And then what did you do to get him help? What kind well, of treatment did you um, get? It was interesting. I really had never, ever dealt with addiction issues before. So I really didn't know what to do. So the first thing I did is I, you know, I, I went, turned to the yellow pages and called some people and they were very helpful. 
And then I, of course, called my insurance company to see, you know, what would be covered. And the insurance company um, wouldn't give him, I wanted him to go to an inpatient treatment facility immediately, and they wouldn't allow that. So he had to go to an outpatient facility. And well, before, well, before we even get there, though, I brought him to a detox a hospital with a detox unit. And they told okay. me that he wasn't addicted enough. And they sent us home. His okay. problem I, wasn't bad enough. I was going to say, he's not addicted enough. His drug problem right. wasn't bad enough. They said the insurance company would not um, allow for him to be admitted. They would not pay for his admittance or approve it, approve it. So okay, that, that, that just doesn't compute to me, Mary. How okay. can an insurance company say he's not... It, he's he, not addicted enough. The drugs aren't bad enough. What are they thinking? Enough. I don't know. All I, all I can tell you is what we were told. And it's in the book. That's how the book opens. Uh, is that we're sent home because his uh, addiction problem isn't bad enough. So I have a problem with the insurance companies right now in my life. You think? And, yeah. Oh I, my God. And then they said that he could, um, he had to go to outpatient treatment before inpatient treatment. At least if we kept him in the state of New Jersey which is very confusing because when I called a place, I called an 800 number, which happened to be out in California, which I had no idea. And they were, they said they would be able to get the insurance company if we could find to California to get it covered. But in New Jersey, they wouldn't cover inpatient treatment. He had to go to outpatient treatment first. So basically they required him to fail first because I think for a lot of people, especially a teenager, outpatient treatment is just not enough. Of okay? course not. It's basically not. drug education, which you heard in high school, which obviously didn't help. So um, he needed inpatient treatment. And I'm even going to say at this point, looking back, he needed long-term inpatient treatment immediately. And he didn't get it. So by the time um, he went through his outpatient, and I thought he was doing fine, um, but then he became addicted again because, you know, same triggers, same friends, you know, all into yep. partying. You know what? It's just not the right thing if somebody's going to recover, especially a very young person. You know, all he wanted to do was go out and have a beer with his friends and he couldn't, you know. Right. And um, so then uh, we were finally, after a very intense time, uh, finally able to get him into an inpatient treatment program. But that was in November. So he asked me for help in June. And I wasn't, it was five months later where I was finally able to get him to where I thought he should be. But it was only a 30 day program or a 28 day program. And of course, that was not enough. And I don't believe that a 28-day program is enough for most people. And if I don't either. do not have um, responsibilities, let's say there's somebody that has a job supporting a family, if they are able to do at least 90 days of an inpatient patient treatment program, that should be the first step in recovery, you know, after detox. But um, of course, that didn't happen with my son. So we go in and out of recovery. Uh, he went, he came home from the D, he came home from his first inpatient treatment in December. By March, he was addicted again. We sent him to another program. Uh, we kept him down. He was in Florida for that one. We kept sending him far away so nobody could, you know, buy him a plane ticket or a train ticket, you know, because we didn't, you know, we wanted him to stay where he was. Right. And he, right. he always did amazingly well in treatment and he was always willing to go when the time came where it was like eric you need help you know um but anyway so then we kept him in florida and we sent him to a halfway house which was horribly run uh and it's terrible i mean i don't like things to be overregulated, but it seems like if you're opening up a halfway house you should have the right kind of people there and the right facilities so that was four months wasted 
And then he came back and I thought he was going to do great. He was determined and he stayed, uh, so he stayed in recovery for a couple more months, but then he fell backwards again. Every single time that he came back or, or came out of uh, treatment, he wasn't ready. You know, a 19 year old kid, you know, especially one that suffers with something like bipolar disorder, depression, somebody that's had a hard time making good decisions throughout high school, they can't just come out 30 days and they're well, they're not. It's like putting a Band-Aid on a cut when somebody needs a tourniquet, you know? Yep. And um, I have a real problem with that. And I really think that we need to change that. Now, I'm not going to say that 90 days is the be all end all and everybody's going to be perfect after 90 days. With any disease, there's always people, regardless of treatment, that are going to succumb to the illness. But I think it gives most people a much better possibility of recovery when they've given the right tools. You can't just... Well, wait way better than 28. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, let's face it, you addiction is it's physical, that's true, but it's also mental, it's also spiritual. Oh, yeah. And as in the case of your son, there were issues in his life that he needed tools yes. in order to deal with yeah. and you know, I don't think you're going to get that in 28 days. No, you don't. You know, I mean, you you've got to, first of all you got to get the drugs you got to stop taking the drugs. So you have to go through the whole withdrawal mm -hmm. and the detox. And that's just the physical aspect of it. That's all and, you're doing there. Yeah. And, um, you know, they, they even say, and I've read it and I've been told by people in the um, addiction community and by therapists, you know, that are, well, just therapists. And um, they say it takes 90 days for the brain to heal, to begin to heal. So why are we throwing people back out? in 30 days or 28 days. When we, when he was in his first rehab, we went to a family weekend and um, the guy said, or the, the presenter, and I forget his name, but he said for an opioid addiction, there's after a 30 day program, there's a 90% chance of relapse. So they sent him home knowing he was going to relapse. And every time somebody relapses, especially if a lot of times their addiction is due to it's, it's helping them deal with an emotional issue, the drugs, the once right. addicted, there's, I mean, it's done, you know, like, nothing's being helped anymore. But in the beginning, it was an emotional issue that the drugs were helping him with. Um, you know, every time he relapsed, it made him feel worse. It brought him deeper into that abyss, that depressional abyss. And it was harder for him to forgive himself and try to try it again. Yeah. So I mean, really drugs, are, let's face it, Mary, drugs are the solution to the problem. There's a problem that exists before the drugs, exactly. as you were saying. And so then the drugs become... How do I deal with this problem? But then I, I totally, I totally see it that then there's the guilt mm -hmm. and then the drugs can somehow mask the guilt. And every time there's a relapse, there's more guilt. There's more, more my family guilt. has spent yeah. all this money and all this time and all this effort to get me clean and sober. And I've just yeah. messed and, up and again, you know, failure too. I mean, he, yeah, 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 yeah. Like he was yeah. a failure. And every time he relapsed, it happened, you know, that feeling, it just made it harder and harder for him to pull himself up to try again. So, um, I just really think, and I was hoping my book, uh, would sort of almost start that conversation because I think a lot of people, you know, in the addiction community is like, well, there's all different ways for people to get well. And I agree, but is there something that works best for most people? Like, I, I, you know, like, I don't think we know that. And so some days, you know, some people AA works, but a lot of people it doesn't work. I was just reading, there's like a 30% success rate or something like that, or even lower than that. It's, yep. it's not that high. 
And it's great. I'm not saying it's not a good thing, but it's got to be something added to it. And a teenager, especially, you know, they need more support. They can't be just thrown back into their house with the same triggers, with maybe the same friends, you know, and even though you encourage them to maybe make new friends, and he did to a degree, um, you know what, he's 19 years old, you know, right. he needed two more months at that inpatient rehab, at least, and then maybe a good halfway house or sober living community, which yep. um, we couldn't get, you know, and a lot of people like me, if you're faced with a, uh, I'm going to say it's about $20,000 a month, approximately for a rehab, you know, you're going to go to an insurance company to say, okay, what's covered, you know, and with me not ever really having experience with addiction, I thought, okay, my son made a mistake. He got addicted. Okay, let's give him the 30 days and he'll move on. But addiction doesn't end so quickly. It's not so easy. So no. unless you live through it, you really don't understand that, I don't think. And I think that's another reason for the book is that I think people need to understand. Um, they need to understand how difficult it is. And I'm not looking for sympathy or sorrow. That's not why I wrote it. I, I just don't think that people, and I think people, some people, even in the helping industry, if they haven't lived with it, you know, uh, very close and personal, they really don't understand the difficulties of it. And I uh, think you're absolutely right. And I think, I think the, the reason why, cause my husband and I, we don't have a child or a loved one who's addicted. Okay. So people have asked us, you know, why did you get involved with it? Well, because it's a problem and it affects all of us. It doesn't just affect you because it was yeah. your son. The yeah. fact that your son died affects me. That's the, that's the truth of it. But the, but the way we've learned a lot about it is, you know, by working with our sponsor, we've been sponsored by Narconon pretty much since day one. And their program is not a 28 day program yeah. and it takes as long as it takes with the people who are there and it's not easy. And there are some, gosh, I think we've talked to some people who've been at that program for six months and you know, it, it doesn't, it doesn't cost them any more to stay there six months than it does 28 days. And I think that one of the problems that you're running into with insurance companies is you know, it's it, a lot of it's about the money, Mary, whether we're talking about Purdue Pharma and their drugs or whether we're talking about the insurance company, you know, if they pay for 28 days and your son goes out and relapses, guess what? He comes back and they pay for 28 days again. It's like, not really, because the second time around, they only wanted to give him 10 days. So if he couldn't get well in 28 days, how is he supposed to get well in 10 days? And I guess my, my, my a major issue that I had is if my son had had cancer, and he needed a year's worth of treatment to cover chemotherapy and radiation, which takes about a year, often nine months to a year, he would have gotten it. And I'm That's told right. that chemotherapy runs in the six figures, like cancer yeah. treatment. So why weren't they, he was 22 years old, why weren't they willing to spend six figures on him to save his life? When they would have if he had another disease. You are listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information on the podcast or to reach out if you have a story you would like to share with us, go to our Facebook page by the same name, or you can email us at theaddictionpodcast at yahoo.com, or go to our website, theaddictionpodcast.com, or call us at 727 314 7080. And please remember to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and give us a five-star review. For more information on our sponsor, Narconon Ojai, visit their website at narcononojai.org. That's N-A-R-C-O-N-O-N-O-J-A-I.org. 
or call 1-866-231-5924. That's 1-866-231-5924. Sometimes, the hardest thing about getting someone into recovery is getting them to agree to treatment. Bobby Newman, a certified drug counselor with 30 years experience and an over 85% success rate as an interventionist, has created a series of 12 videos that you can use right now to learn every step to get your loved one to agree to treatment. Call 1-833-918-0008 today and say the word podcast to get a 10% discount. Or go to newmaninterventions.com and type in the word podcast for a 10% discount. This service comes with a free one-hour consultation with Bobby. So Because it's not understood and because still there is the reality on the part of a lot of people that he should just be able to stop on his own. And that is, that, that is, it just shows such a misunderstanding of addiction, what it is, how it affects the person, how it affects the body, the whole thing. And people don't understand it. And they think, Oh, he should just stop. He should just say no. That is so narrow-minded and shallow. It's just, and I think insurance companies do the same thing. And yeah, it's no, I, criminal, basically. It is. It is. It's criminal. Like I said, if my son had any other disease, I think he would have gotten treatment. There wouldn't have been any questions asked. And he might still be here today. I still feel um, that if he had gotten even three months straight, you know, for that first treatment, he might still be here. In the book, uh, he had made a speech a month before he died. And um, he said in the speech that when he went to his first rehab, he said I, he finally felt relief from his pain, his internal pain. So what if he had been given two or three more months of treatment? Maybe he would have figured out how to deal with that internal pain instead yeah. of going back and starting to feel it again so quickly. You know, yeah. and, and, I, and I don't think people understand that. Like they think people just take drugs, they get addicted. But a lot of times those drugs, at least until the addiction takes hold, are helping those people deal with a lot of pain inside. And I don't know why my son had so much pain inside because he um, was raised and loved, you know, immensely by many people, but he did. And it was something that, you know, he said to me, you know, you can tell me I'm smart and you can tell me I'm all these great things. He said, but that's not what my brain tells me. Like he could not see everything that other people saw in him. And it was very unfortunate because he was a great kid in many ways. And we've heard that from recovered addicts where they had to learn to love themselves. They had to learn their own self-respect before they could expect it from other people and even not expect it, but accept it from other people. Right. So I get that. So, so what happened toward the end? I mean, uh, I honestly, um, what happened was, is after two rehabs, uh, we realized that he was not going to get what he needed from our insurance company. So he was in and out of, uh, I guess, recovery about two years at that point. So we sent him to a long-term treatment facility in Connecticut that we paid for. Um, and he was there nine months and he did amazingly well. And what happened? I really have no idea. He was seen as a leader up there. He um, helped a lot of people, Um, the people that came to his funeral, so many of them that were in recovery just said I couldn't have done it without him. He was my strength, he was was the leader up there. So I don't know what happened. Um, I just think it just goes to show 
how insidious addiction is and how uh, it can just come back and sneak up on a person at any point. Um, I really did. I, did he die while he was there or had he come home? No, he died in Connecticut. So I, I, I would have expected that phone call a year earlier, but not when it came. So I don't know what happened. I wish I could ask him. <laughs> um, you know, there was a girl in his life that I had met once because a tree was planted in his memory um, about, I guess about nine months after he died, we went back up to Connecticut. No, it was about uh, whatever, seven months or whatever. But anyway, after he died we went up to Connecticut, I was introduced to a girl that had befriended him. And I don't know if she had anything to do with it because it was just very strange. She was never, I, I would inquire about her later on to his friends and they, nobody knew who she was. So she sort of came into his life, he died and then she disappeared. It was, so I don't know if they struggled together or if um, she encouraged him or tempted him. I don't know, I don't know. Did he, did he die of an overdose, Mary? Yes, he did, he did. Okay. And I couldn't believe it. I had to wait to see the autopsy report. I thought maybe he had a brain aneurysm or something because he, right. he was home four days before he died. And we were talking about the future. We were talking about this, that, and the other thing, making plans. And then four days later, I was expecting him home for the weekend. And I get a phone call at four o'clock in the afternoon mm -hmm. saying he died. So, um, you know, I'm it's so sorry, Mary. I'm just, I'm, I'm sorry you have to go I'd through like that. To have, I'm out of questions I'd like to have answered, but um, unfortunately I'm not going to get those answers. So, it's just, uh, it's a disease. And, you know, for some people, it's harder than others. And I think for my son, it really was extremely difficult. You know, some people do recover more easily than others, but um, some people don't. And for him, it was just extremely difficult. And, um, you know, he was, he was what, 19? He was 22 when he died. 22? 22. He said, and you how know, long, how I, long ago was that? Sorry. Um, 2012. So okay. it's going to be nine years. But it's, it's uncanny or eerie because my son, for whatever reason, I used to say, you have a death wish. And he's saying, no, mom, he'd always tell me he was never going to see his 22nd birthday. So when he turned 22, I said, you made it. And then he died, whatever, six months later. So it's crazy. It really is. I'm just sorry you had to go through that. I just, thank you. Mother's worst nightmare. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> it's, yeah. Anyway, so um, I just you wrote the book. Yeah, I wrote a book and um, I wrote it to increase understanding of the problem because I think a lot of people really don't get it. And I think that um, I was one of those people. I never had dealt with addiction. I never dealt with mental illness. So I really did not understand how difficult it could be. So I think that that's, you know, something that I want people to get out of the book. I also wrote it because Eric always wanted to write a book about his struggle since high school. And I don't know if he even knew what his struggle was when he used to say it, but uh, towards the end of his life, we talked about writing it together. So I, um, I, I finished it, you know, in his honor. Um, the beginning of the book, it's about my struggle and dealing with him and the mental illness and stuff. But I think at the end of his life, when he, um, you know, is in recovery for 11 months, you know, he really starts to learn about himself and he understands why he started doing rugs and how they made him feel better. So I give him his voice at the end. And then at the very end, I do put in his own writings. He wrote some poems and he had some writings um, and in his last rehab, he had to, you know, keep like a journal. So I, I put that in and a lot of people that have read the book thought it was really neat because they feel like it, they got to know him a little bit. So um, yeah, that's, that's the main reason. And of course, you know, with understand, I think a lot needs to change with treatment, especially. I think long-term inpatient treatment needs to be the way. Um, 
And I think that, you know, I want the book to start a conversation about that because I mean, maybe my son wouldn't have died if he had gotten what he needed to get immediately when he was ready. He asked me for help. I didn't have to figure it out. He says, mom, I need help. And then I couldn't get him the help that he needed. So I think a conversation needs to be started about that. And, you know, so hopefully, you know, the stigma, you know, I think every time people share their stories, you know, it helps erode away at that stigma a little bit because, I, you know, we're just everyday people, you know, I'm a teacher, exactly. I had three kids. I grew up in, you know, a semi-rural community. I raised my kids in a semi-rural community. They were in sports. They were, he was a karate, he had a black belt in karate, you know, like I was just everyday, everyday person, you know, and um, if it could happen to my family, it ain't gonna happen to anybody, you know? It's true. We talk about it all the time about the stigma and the fact that, because of the stigma, people don't get treatment when they need it because addiction doesn't know any religious no. boundaries or any economic boundaries or race or anything else. And, no. and this is the thing that, that has been brought home to Steve and I over and over and over again. When we talk about addiction, we're not talking about the dirty homeless guy under the bridge. Yeah. You know, we're talking about the young man like your son who is well-educated and had a good childhood and, but was dealing with problems for which drugs became the solution. And then uh, to not get the treatment that he needed, it's just. Because I think uh, he could have found a way out of his problem, his depression or whatever was bothering him if he had gotten the right treatment. I mean, I had brought him to therapists and psychologists, you know, psychiatrists throughout the years, but you know, I think that more intensive treatment is what some people need. And I think that would have made a tremendous difference for him. So yeah, we need, we need a lot of, a lot of change has to happen. A lot of change has happened since he's died, but more needs to change. And it seems like with every state, even it's different, you know, because he had a friend that went into treatment and his um, insurance company, same one, but of another state. So I won't mention the name (laughs) and he got 11 months of treatment paid for. And my son got one month and then we had to fight for another month. We had to analyze, give him 10 days. He had to go to inpatient treatment, outpatient treatment first, which was, a waste of everybody's useless. time and money. Yep. Useless. And, they, and they, and twice he got turned away from detox twice. So, um, the book goes through all that, you know, the frustration. Right. And, um, right. so I, I don't know, it's just, I, I, I think that the more stories that we share, I think the better off we are, because I think this is something that really needs to be fixed and people need to understand it, uh, so that it can be fixed and without understanding change doesn't happen. So, you know, I agree with you. Where can people get your book, Mary? It's called Saving Eric, right? Yes, it's called Saving Eric. There it is. And that's his tree on the front. There's a tree planted in his memory. I didn't know what to put on the book. So I put on this tree, but uh, on the cover, um, uh, you can get it through Amazon, Saving Eric. Okay. Uh, you can get it at okay. Barnes and Noble. I'm sure your local bookstore, I like to keep the brick and mortar in uh, business. So you, they could order it for you. <laughs> yep. I'm certain. So um, yeah. But, Mary, tell me about the changing the face of addiction walk is that um an initiative that you started or Uh, myself and another mother um i i'm i'm involved with uh, addiction advocacy there's a local group from ncad national council of uh, alcohol and drug dependency they call themselves something else now but i've got involved in that with a local organization up here that um gives treatment um and therapy to people that you know don't have means okay so they'll do like iop and um therapy individual therapy so uh, I got involved in the advocacy group um, with them. And then I knew another mother who lost her son probably about a year and a half after Eric died. And she wanted to do something. So uh, we connected and then we came up with this walk and um, we um, 
got, you know, we do it with this organization. It's called the Center for Prevention and Counseling. And the money raised for, uh, is raised for them and they use it for people, you know, um, scholarship. So people that don't okay. have money for treatment, don't have insurance, can get some sort of treatment. I mean, it's, it's IOP and it's, you know, therapy, you know, but it's for people that have no means, it's, you know, something. And they're a great group of people. They are so compassionate and they do a really wonderful job. So the walk though, um, we started it, this year was our sixth walk. And the first year we did it, we were not sure what was going to happen. 225 people came. This year we did it virtually. Over 600 people walked and we made, I think it was like about $68,000. So it was unbelievable what has happened with it is it it, at first it was in memory of you know eric and george but now it's in memory of all those that are lost and we have people coming walking in memory of sons daughters mothers fathers they're walking because their parents are in recovery or their sons in recovery whatever and it's just it's become quite something and it's really nice to see people to just be there not be ashamed to feel comfortable people share their stories And it's just, and it has grown. It's like we hit a nerve because we went from 225 to over 600 and that was virtually. (laughs) Right. So it's, it's been a really great thing. So, um, you know, I think that you offer some sort of fellowship to people who don't know what to do and don't know where to go. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we've talked about it many times on the podcast that when parents find out their child is addicted, the first thing is, what do I do? Yes. And is it my fault? Which, of course, it's not. Yeah. But um, yeah, so I I think that's great. Mary, thank you so much for being willing to talk with us today. If you had just one message to give parents who might be listening to this podcast who have a child that is addicted, what would that message be? Uh, I guess my message is if you have insurance is to fight for what your child needs. Um, If there are laws in your state, there might be laws on the books that require insurance companies to give, you know, treatment or a certain type of treatment, or you can, um, what is it? Um, What's the word? Fight for what your child wants. You can Oh, there's a word I'm looking for. Appeal? Appeal. Appeal decision. Okay. So to do that um, and just, you know, get what your child needs, you know, and um, I don't know what else to say. Just love your child because in the end they need to know they're loved. I mean, that's the one thing I have to take with me even after Eric died is that I knew he was loved. He knew, he knew he was loved and he knew how to love other people. So you need to just support them. I mean, they're your kid. You want them better. Now, does that, you can't enable them. I mean, there's a fine line, it's hard, but you have to love them and you have to try to do the best you can for them, that's all. And um, try to get them the treatment and fight for what you think they need, so. I think I think that's a good message. Don't take no for an answer. If your insurance company yeah. says no, go yeah. back to them and say that's not good enough. Yeah. And appeal if you have to, because there yep. are organizations in every state, you know, departments that will take up that appeal. Yep. Because I did not know any of that. I really went into this completely blind and oftentimes when you have a child that's addicted um sometimes you're just you're just you're in reaction mode you're in crisis mode when you have to make these decisions and you don't you know and you're so your emotions are so you're just so emotional at this point because you've been going through a lot with this kid and um you just you're not thinking straight you don't know really where to turn so um take a deep breath and try to really figure things out because it's difficult it's very difficult so Yep. Thank you, Mary. Thank you for being willing to talk to us today. I know that your story is going to resonate with people and 
you bring a slightly different angle to it with the whole insurance thing. I am enraged by the insurance company's response yes. to helping your son. Um, and I hope that there are people listening and if they're getting that same response that they know that they need to appeal it and make a big stink about it because yeah. that's completely unacceptable. Yeah. Now I think we need to start screaming because yep. people deserve treatment and they deserve treatment that works. 30 That's days right. doesn't work. We pretty much know that. So why do we keep using the same model? Let's yep. try something new. So, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you for being with us today. Another mother's tale. Um, and yet one that I think brings a different perspective to the problem. I mean, not only did she have to deal with her son's addiction and the nightmare that that presents. But in trying to get him help, she has to deal with an insurance company that won't help. If an insurance company is not going to ensure that someone like Eric gets the treatment that he needs, why have insurance? I mean, I know I sound flip when I say that, but it just, it breaks my heart that when you have a young man like Eric who wants help and he can't get it because the insurance company won't pay for it or he's not addicted enough, the drugs are not bad enough. I, I don't, I, I just, I don't, I'm sorry. I don't get it. I mean, I do get it, but I, I, it enrages me. I'm not happy about it. So we'll be back again next week. And I think that Mary made a very, really good point. If you have a loved one who's addicted and your insurance company is giving you the runaround, you need to fight. You need to fight. You need to appeal and threaten and scream and yell and shout to get the treatment that your loved one needs. There you go. We'll be back again next week. We are a good month into 2021, and we'll be back again next week with our 200th episode. So please join us again for our next interview. You have been listening to The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return, sponsored by Narcanon Ojai. For more information on Narcanon Ojai, call 866-231-5924 or visit www.narcanonojai.org. Narcanon is a non-12-step rehabilitation program based on the works of L. Ron Hubbard.